when, when boxers tell me I'm brave, I kind of go, you're crazy, you're brave. Because you're, I liken what I do to getting into a boxing ring and hoping the other guy doesn't show up, <laughs> you know? everybody, welcome to Tourist Information. My name is Bryn Jonathan Butler. This week's interview is with my good friend Ben Anderson, who is a journalist and war correspondent and author who's covered a lot of war zones all over the world. And uh, I got the idea of talking to him after attending a fight and seeing him across the ring. And his face kind of took me out of the fight before I recognized who it belonged to just the way he was internalizing these two women who were fighting in the ring. And uh, it just made me think, how does this contrast with being at the front lines of a lot of extraordinarily dangerous conflicts? And um, Ben is one of the nicest people that I've ever dealt with since I moved to New York. And um, this was, he's, he's been struggling a little bit with PTSD from his work and hasn't been able to do this job that he is so devoted to and I think pretty addicted to at this point. And uh, that's some of the stuff that we went into with this. So I, I hope you enjoy Ben Anderson. Uh, who's your favorite fighter of all time? I think I have to say Roberto Duran. And and most, most and I feel guilty saying this, but, but mostly for the Davy Moore fight. Hmm. I mean, as brutal as that is and despite all the, you know, dirty tactics that he used and the lacing of the black eyes and all that stuff, just in terms of, like, pure just, just guts and toughness and, you know, I just, I just, I, I, I love Durant. He's my favourite too. Uh, and Durant's one of those ones, by the way, where if you met him and hung out with him, back, especially back then, you'd probably hate him. <laughs> you know, he sounded like such a, but, but he was just such an animal that I, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the stories about Harry Grab and people like that as well, but Durant, I, I think I'd have to pick Durant. I mean, Ali, if I was, you know, going with it'd be close between Ali and, and, and Duran but Ali's such an obvious choice that I'll go with Duran Duran's a good one um, you see the picture behind you wow no I didn't see it when I came in so that's a silk screen of the documentary they made about Ali refusing to go to Vietnam so it's Muhammad Ali versus the Supreme Court and I was a 23 year old kid um, absolutely broke was boxing at the time and walked past um, a shop that sold you know original silk screens from movies and saw that, and it was like, there was no, it's, it's the only expensive thing at that point in my life I'd ever bought. It was like, I don't know, it was about a thousand dollars, and I, there's no way I could afford anything like that, but I was like, I have to have that, and I've had it ever since. You take it everywhere you go, where you live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's been in every home I've had in London, I, I definitely made sure I brought it here and hung it up straight away. Interesting too, at the bottom, you've got a custom auto, William Caton, yeah. Jim Jacobs, Jim Jacobs yeah. the nucleus for Mike Tyson. And the soundtrack was uh, Tio Masero, Masero, who did, uh, you know, was Miles Davis's producer. Oh, wow. That's, wow. The, the idea of Ali and the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> off their arms. Uh, yeah, that would have been pretty controversial in that day. Um, favorite, favorite fight of you, that you've ever seen? Um... I mean, there are the obvious ones that everyone says, Hagler Hearns, um, uh, Rumble in the Jungle. Um, so I'll try and pick one that's slightly more um, off the wall. Um, I love Winky Wright versus Felix Trinidad. Hmm. Um, just the way he just like, you know, just like established the jab, 
understood what what Tito was trying to do, didn't let him do it, and then just slowly built off the jab. It was like, you know, when people describe boxing as an art form, that was like boxing as an art form. Hmm. Um, I loved watching that fight. It's a clinic. Remains a clinic. Definitely will. And it's such a clinic that you almost forget that the guy in front of right is the most dangerous one-punch puncher in the sport. Do you have a favorite round that you're watching in real time? Danny Jacobs is a good friend of mine. I made a short documentary about him becoming world champion after he came back from cancer. Um, and then he fought Peter Quillen. Mm. And at the time, I think he was the underdog. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm friends with Carl Froch, David Hay. Seeing your friend fight and thinking your friend might lose and knowing what that means for their life. You know, maybe they're not gonna make enough money to, to, to be good. Uh, maybe they're gonna get hurt. You know, it's, it's a completely different way of watching boxing. And he was the underdog. Peter Quillen was a big puncher. And I went there with a real fear that I could see Danny get, get knocked out. And so to see Danny stop Peter Quillen in the first round, that's that, that and Carl Froch beating uh, Lucien Boutet in Nottingham. But just seeing your friend in a fight where they're the underdog and you're very nervous and you see them win so decisively and easily, that's, that, that, yeah, they're, they're, they're my favorite. It's very different to, like, like, like you, I've made friends with some of the families of, of these great fighters, and when you don't know them and you see them sitting there watching their husband or their father, it's very different when you've talked to them about what it's like for them to watch, because I've never met these families who say, it's worth, the highs are never worth the lows of picking up the yeah. pieces when these guys lose. They all very quickly are just like, absolutely, it's yeah, not yeah, worth yeah. it. Yeah. To hear a whole crowd cheering your husband or father be, and also, you know, one loss can mean they're not going to make it, yeah. and 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 they, there is no plan B often. So you know what that means for the for the for the family and the kids. Um, so there's, there's there's that's drama like nothing else. Do you remember the saddest moment you ever watched with with a fight? Um, actually, yeah. Um, Mike Tyson was a was a childhood friend, a childhood hero of mine. Um, I remember thinking, you know. There was a period when Tyson was like 20, 21 years old, when he was so humble, so articulate, so thoughtful, knew boxing inside out, was quote, quoting famous writers as well. And also his, his, his childhood, like, you know, when, when things looked so good for him when he was 20, 21, I, I, it was almost like this, like, a, like an odyssey, you know. Like, I remember thinking if anyone can turn their life around as much as he, will, he was able to turn his life around um, and go from, you know, poorest, most hated, most feared to, to you know, what he, he looked like he was going to become when he was 20, 21. Um, he was my childhood hero and he was an inspiration because I thought if he can turn his life around that much, I have no excuse because I'm not coming from anything like what he was coming from. So the whole, you know, Teddy Atlas, Custy Martin thing, I read all the books, I was so into that. And my family has never been even vaguely religious. So when he fought Holyfield and Holyfield's walking into the ring, you know, singing hymns, um, with Bible quotes on his shorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then just slowly seeing him, him, you know, out bully Tyson. I actually went out. I was living in this this tiny little flat in London. I mean, literally like eight feet by ten feet. Um, I actually prayed for the first time in my life. So I remember thinking, if, if this guy, this hymn-singing guy, can beat my hero, 
there must be something in this it's Christianity and and you know the old thing where um, if you take one step towards God he'll take two steps towards you that like I took that one step and nothing came back but that's how devastated I was to see Tyson lose that fight because I just thought he was he was at the time I thought he was the greatest of all time did you did you know about his his childhood also did like you're talking about the transformation he made you know, from a prison and the, the war zone of Brownsville and that kind of thing. But did you also know that he was this world-class victim of a guy, a, a bully by everybody, never could stand up for himself? Yeah, was until that, someone killed his favorite pigeon and then right. he just lost it. and then suddenly, it yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I read everything that had ever been written about Tyson, watched every interview. Um, yeah, he was, he was, he literally was my childhood hero. You, you were not a bullied kid, though, were you? Uh, a bit. Um, and nothing like nothing like him, but could definitely definitely enough to relate. Okay. You know. Huh. Well, and so one of the things that, that jumped out at me about interviewing you, which I, I hadn't thought of for this series, but since we've known each other since 2014, you reached out to me after you were the following guest on Long Form, after I talked about Cuba, and we met up, and ever since then. Frequently, I have seen you in Madison Square Garden or the Barclays Center. I'm not sure about Las Vegas, but those are the two places I see your face most frequently. And on September 13th of, of this year, 2019, I was watching, I think it was Amanda Serrano and, and Heather Hardy, and I got distracted by the way that you were watching the fight before I recognized that it was you. Because your face has a kind of placid expression watching boxing that is a bit unlike other people. And I started to process how you, who is globally known as somebody covering conflicts far broader than the world of boxing, I was just struck by how you must process boxing as a war correspondent, um, how that might be different than... Like how can you be? How can you go from the hero? I don't mean it the way this is going to sound, but the heroine of military conflict in the front lines of some like global hell places that people would do anything they could to avoid. Um, how can boxing be exciting for you in comparison? I mean, I think it's one of the few things where I, I did it at a very low level for a few years, and I was nineteen, twenty, twenty-one years old, and and. For a very brief period, thought I was very good because I beat up the the college. I was at university, the university bully, mm-hmm. and the coach, who's now one of my best friends and had a few pro fights, and now is is you know almost head of Sky Boxing in the UK. Obviously, saw that I thought I was pretty good and realised that I really wasn't, and said, "Look, Ben, this is a university boxing club. I'll take you to a real boxing club." So he took me to the Fitzroy Lodge in South London, um, and my first spa was with. I was 20, 21, I was very big and muscly, I was training a lot, working out a lot, and thought I had some sort of talent. Um, they put me in with a 16-year-old kid who had a stupid haircut, a stupid vest, skinny, and I thought, oh, I'll take it easy with this with this kid, and he wiped the floor with me. Um, and, and I realized that there were, there were so many levels, and I, I really wasn't very good at boxing, and, and, and it was much harder than I thought it was, and I went to see a live fight, a few weeks later and just appreciated it in a whole other way and every other sport you know I mean I understand you have to have amazing hand-eye coordination to hit a baseball Um, I understand how hard it is for David Beckham to take a free kick and get it up and down over the wall but it doesn't really impress me or excite me that much and I kind of although I couldn't do it I understand how you can do it when I see someone great 
in a boxing ring, I, I still, and I've, I've seen thousands of fights, I still don't quite understand how they do it. I mean, physically, I don't understand how they do it because it's so hard to do the things they're doing that fast. I mean, that, 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 that I watched the, I showed someone some Andre Ward footage the other day and there's that moment where he, he, he pushes a right hand, um, he pushes a jab away with his right hand and then blocks a, a right hand with his left shoulder and the right hand he's just part of a punch away with, he, he scores a straight right to the guy and, and hurts him. Right. And in the actual fight, it's, it's like that. And I'd find it hard to do that in slow motion. So physically, I find it hard to understand. But then just in terms of the, the courage and the self-belief and the, you know, the, the, the unwillingness to give up, even when you've had 10, you've lost 10 round, rounds in a row and you're hurt and you're tired. And yet still, occasionally, someone finds a way to win or just to not, not give up. Um, I'm just absolutely in awe of that. Um, and, and I think that's the main thing. That, that's the kind of the, the intellectual answer to your question. The other version could be, because I've been covering war for like 18 years, I've, I got diagnosed with PTSD about, about two years ago. Um, I've probably had it for a decade. So I can be in a street where bullets are literally flying and my heart rate doesn't increase <laughs> even a tiny little bit. So that could be part of it as well. I've taken friends to fights who aren't boxing people at all. And they've just said, look, Ben, that was just a bit too intense. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. And it's never occurred to me that would be their reaction, you know? Right. Um, so it's, you know, it could be, I've put myself in such stupid situations for so long that it takes something like a really big 50-50 boxing match just to get my juices flowing enough to actually get me interested. You know, other stuff just, just doesn't interest me. And uh, do the stakes of the violence, I mean, 20th century's had a thousand people die from boxing, training, sparring, fighting. It's Honestly, it's, it, I mean, maybe it's the stakes, but, but I have no interest in UFC, for example. And actually, oh. I'm quite disgusted by UFC sometimes. You know, I see a guy clearly out, fall to the floor, and then someone jumps on him and, and, and you know, gets two or three hits in, clean hits. Um, if I see a street fight where someone goes down and someone, you know, someone goes down and they, they kick him in the head, I'm disgusted and horrified. Um, I sometimes feel bad about my love for boxing um, because, you know, I've, I've seen I've seen boxers clearly go on a bit too long and clearly become punch drunk. I've seen I've seen a guy that I know pretty well in England get carried out of the ring in a coma. Yeah. Luckily, he made a full recovery. Um, but but I don't think it's just I don't think it's just just the stakes. I mean, it's it's also the stakes of just being able to perform. Yeah. on such a big stage in front of so many people and you know I mentioned I was friends with David Hay I think what separated him from so many other people was if I if I had a year to train for a fight and then you said to me okay you're going to walk into a ring with 18,000 people live on TV against a guy who we think you can probably beat I'd still be thinking oh my god I wanna, I'm not going to be able to throw a punch I'm going to freeze I'm going to get knocked out I'm going to look stupid in front of everybody David thought I belong here it's absolutely right that these 18,000 people are watching me and I'm about to go in there and absolutely shine. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of that as well. Just, just people for whom no pressure is too much pressure, you know? I'm interested in that too. I mean, the, the title of this podcast is Tourist Information because I feel like a tourist to boxing no matter how many of these people I've had time with. Um, but there, there is something about these people that feel as if they have a passport to belong in such a life of extremes. And you have it covering war, but these fighters also are at the front lines of their own sort of smaller theater. But um, I, yeah, I, I wonder what it is 
that's clicking in the mind that allows you to think you belong in a place? Because do they all feel like they belong, or is there a bit of imposter syndrome too that has to be gotten over? I'm not, I'm not sure. And it's also a danger as well, because some guys who clearly don't stand a chance in a fight or clearly should have given up will continue and, 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 and you know, continue having that self-belief. I mean, I, I got to meet Teddy Atlas a few months ago, and we were talking about, um, who was it? Um, we'd watched a fight where the guy won, but was clearly past it. And we both said he shouldn't be fighting anymore. I said the old cliche, you know, the last thing to leave a fighter is his punch. Mm -hmm. So because he still had a punch, he was able to win this fight. And he said, no, no, two things stay with a fighter forever. His punch and his character. Huh. So even when his legs have gone, there might be some, some long-term damage done already, even when he's putting against guys who he's got no real chance with, he'll still have that, that character. Um, and that made sense. And that, yeah, that's one of the other reasons I love boxing is that, is that you know, that there is like an, there's an original thinking to boxing. You know, there's like, if, if you start employing the lazy cliches, you'll pretty soon be proved wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and there's always, there's always more to it. Well, one of those things when I saw you across the ring that I was thinking is every time I see you, I have a good feeling and I have a sad feeling and that I'm, I feel a huge amount of relief that you're okay <laughs> yeah. if you had a fight because you're somebody, I don't know personally many police officers or firemen, but I mean, day-to-day -day existence for you, quotidian, is such an extreme that I think I only a couple times have walked into something where I, I knew it was a real danger that I, I didn't want to tell my family about sort of thing. And it, it had to do with boxing. You know, there's, there is a big criminal element with boxing. And some of these, these Cuban fighters I followed to Tijuana where a manager was being threatened to be killed or planting drugs on him or kidnapped, that sort of thing. And his security wouldn't go with them. But it amazed me that that was a horrible day in my life to go down there. Um, and you accept those kind of risks for, as you said, 18 years. Um, but I wonder how much, like with these fighters who can't let it go, do you, do you view your own attraction to some of these extreme theaters of conflict, to addiction? Yeah, I think it's different with what I do because I am addicted to, to covering war, but, but not because, you know, some people say that, some boxers say they're addicted to the, the roar of the crowd. Yeah. You know, the ring walk, the, the feeling of victory. Um, it, the, the actual experience of, of covering war is horrible. Um, and anyone that tells you it's a thrill and it's exciting, you know, a lot of American male reporters will kind of say, oh, a bullet coming at you is lifetimes 500, and, you know, all it, and, and I just think you haven't, you haven't been close enough. You haven't seen the real effects of war if you think this is exciting and some big adventure. Or you're thinking completely selfishly. Because I'm not there to, to, to you know, have a little adventure for myself and have some interesting stories. I'm there to cover the effects of war. So therefore, I'm trying to see what war does to people. The last, the last two trips I had, one to Mosul, one to Yemen, I saw seven or eight Iraqi soldiers that I'd spent three weeks with killed. Three of them literally, like the top half of their bodies and their heads just blown to pieces, um, probably 40, 50 meters in front of me. Um, in Yemen, I spent some time with a, a, a guy who dismantles IEDs. He got killed two weeks later by an IED. Um, we spent a day in a, in a child malnutrition clinic, which was surrounded by mines and snipers, um, where a nurse um, was just like begging us to tell the world to stop the war in Yemen, which, by the way, we could very easily. Um, and she was just about keeping about 30, 40 
tiny babies alive, just. Um, they were all starving. Um, so I'm addicted to it because I think that's the most important story in the world to tell. I think that should be front page every day. Um, it's always been very hard to get it on the front page. Um, it's especially hard now because it's just Trump 24 yeah. seven. Um, and it's not even, you know, often it's just gossip coverage. It's just who said what to who, what did this tweet mean? Who might get fired next? You know, it's not substantive coverage, but, but I don't know what it is. I, I think it's prob probably Iraq and Afghanistan where we had soldiers fighting there and, and pretty soon we had no idea what the point was. We had no idea what, what victory looked like, and yet still these body bags were coming home. Um, so, so you know, fatigue has really set in, and, and, and getting people to care is, is, I think, more difficult than it's ever been. But I still believe it's the most important story in the world. So that, in that sense, I'm addicted, because I love doing these boxing documentaries every now and again, just for my mental health, just to do something, you know, with, get, get to spend time with someone that I admire. Yeah. Um, but if you said to me, that's it for you, no more, no more war coverage. I'd, I'd say, I'm, I'm just going to feel useless. I just feel like I, I have no purpose anymore. Well, I'm listening to some of your interviews, researching this. I was struck by, and I've noticed this when you and I have gone out a few times, that the simple pleasures of, of life here in the United States uh, really delight you. Like, I mean, you you will go to some lengths to find a donut that you particularly <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard you consistently pointing that out in contrast to these front lines of conflicts that you've covered is they make you appreciate these things when you come back. But I was wondering that if you didn't have being a, a, a Virgil into the various layers of hell of war, would you enjoy life here or would it drive you crazy to be here all the time? Would you fixate on some of the stuff that, that you, you, you have pointed out? You're on the subway and people aren't reading and they aren't informing themselves about, yeah, many yeah. people aren't. I mean, you could go either way so easily. I mean, I, I, I don't really drink. I try and have like two or three drinks maximum because I've seen a lot of ex-war correspondents who are just so bitter about the world and how little the world cares about what they've yeah. dedicated their life to. I could, I could really easily go the other way and do go the other way quite often. I mean, part of the PTSD has been trying to not, not do that. But then on good days, if I'm meeting a friend or, you know, then, then yeah, if you can go out for New York's best pizza or go to a big fight in Madison Square Garden, then, then yeah, on, on good days, I, I, I think I'm so lucky just to, just to be able to wake up, have a shower, get a cup of coffee, read a newspaper, and then go and have some little adventure. Mm. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a, sometimes it takes discipline or effort to get, to get motivated enough to enjoy and appreciate that. Um, and you could easily go the other way, and lots of other people have gone gone the other way. I mean, I'm very lucky that, that mentally I'm somewhat in one piece, and physically I'm still in one piece, you know, yeah. very lucky. Well, and, and that's something you were talking before about your identification with Mike Tyson, which we share, but I was also struck, learning more about you, that you, you seem to use books as a real gateway drug into the identity that you wanted to assume from Northern England, you mentioned reading Malcolm X's autobiography was totally transformative. Um, but then I was kind of taken aback, actually, because beyond the Tyson parallel, uh, you mentioned George Orwell, Martha Gellhorn, Michael Hare, war correspondents that, for me, the first book I did about Cuba was, a, for me, a combination of what Dispatches was, where Stanley Kubrick famously said of that book that, there's no wiener in the buns for him to take it and turn it into a movie because it's just an impressionistic mosaic of war 
I thought, well, you can do that. Well, Cuba then became a place where it's a Cold War, it's not Vietnam, but why not just do a cultural kind of mosaic of daily life and see if that has some value to people who haven't been there before. Um, but you use these writers in the Malcolm X thing where you're kind of looking off at, at an identity that you could, you could have, it seemed like. And I, I just wondered what that... I wondered that I wanted to interview a lot of the people that were involved in the things that fascinated me, but, but I would never want to go to the military conflict. And I know that you, you, you've talked about that your father was a policeman and you had some, some members of your family were in World War II, um, that you had a part of your PTSD was recognizing that you haven't cried since you were like a kid and that creating a, an identity that was built on bravery was really important to you. And so it seemed like there was an element of performance that was necessary that, that I, have, I have always been very interested in with fighters I've seen is how much of what, a lot of what they have to do is a, a kind of theater. As much as all the training and everything, they have to get on the stage and perform and there's no act two. And you have that too when you're, when you're off covering these wars, but I wondered why did you want to cover war instead of participating in war yourself? I actually tried to join the military when I was 18. I walked into the recruiter's office. Um, and just because, I mean, the reason I, I discovered books and loved books so much was because there's a, there, Nietzsche was one. All of the authors you mentioned I absolutely love. I'd add Nietzsche to the list. Okay. And there's, there's a Nietzsche line where he says, um, he who is lost in the outside world will become master of his own, <laughs> I think. Um, and just the idea of, you know, I, I kind of looked at what I was supposed to become and it was just so dull and wasn't useful in any way whatsoever. And as a kid, I mean, my, my, my grandparents all fought in World War II, never really spoke about it. I think one of my granddads burnt his uniform the day he got out and barely spoke about it ever again. My other granddad spoke about it right at the end of his life when he had dementia and would tell some fairly interesting stories about fighting in Libya and, and, and Italy. Um, but during his life, not that much. Um, so that, that was never, in, it was never, there was never a direct influence to have anything to do with, with, with war or the military. But I just lacked purpose and discipline and drive. So I just thought, join the military, become a grunt for a year, and you'll learn to wake up at 6 a.m. and make your bed and shave and be disciplined and like build towards something. Um, and they saw that I'd got some pretty good results at school, so I said, look, you should consider becoming an officer. Hmm. I said, no, I don't want to become an officer. I just want to be a grunt. I just want you to like knock me into shape. So I can do something with my life. Um, and they gave me the officer materials and I went away and read them and thank God never went back into the recruiter's office ever again. I would have hated it and I would have been fighting with the, you know, the authorities like right. all the time. Um, but it, I don't know where it comes from because my family weren't political, there weren't newspapers around and we never talked about international conflict or international causes or political causes. Um, but I read a lot about the civil rights movement in America when I was 17, 18. I read a lot about Palestine, Congo, Iraq, um, East Timor, Chile. Um, and I watched a documentary about East Timor where an Australian reporter called Greg Shackleton, I think his name was, um, went to report on the coming Indonesian invasion. And everybody fled, but he stayed. And he recorded this piece about this family that he'd got to know and just said, these wonderful, lovely people are about to get slaughtered and I might get slaughtered too, but you should know what's about to happen and who the people are that are about to get slaughtered. And he did get killed, he got killed. I think they chopped off his testicles and put them in his mouth and hung him from his feet. 
But as crazy as this sounds, I watched that and thought, I could do that. Yeah. I could not, obviously not get killed at the end of it, yeah. but I could just go somewhere tough and stick it out longer than everybody else um, and come out with a really important story. Um, and it's the first time in my entire life I'd ever thought, here's a way you can, you can contribute, you can be useful. Um, I understand your point completely about the performance. I, when, when I don't mean it derogatorily. No, no, I didn't take it that way no. at all. But when, when boxers tell me I'm brave, I kind of go, you're crazy, you're brave. Because you're... I liken what I do to getting into a boxing ring and hoping the other guy doesn't show up. <laughs> you know? Like I'm in a dangerous place, but you're hoping nothing bad happens. Right. You know? Whereas boxers know that there's another guy there who's trained to knock him unconscious. And with their own brains and fists, they've got to stop that happening and, and maybe be the one to do it themselves. All I have to do is duck at the right time and put up with like sleeping on the ground and eating crappy food and, and seeing some nasty stuff. So, it, you know, I, I think I would more f feel more comfortable being called brave if there was a performance element. Mm. But often it's just endurance. You just go somewhere horrible and you just stick it out and just grind it out for like three or four weeks until you've got enough footage to tell the story. And you could argue that filmmaking and editing and writing is, is you know, is somewhat of a skill. But, but if I was asked to do everything I do in making a documentary about war in the space of 36 minutes in an arena in front of 18,000 people, or, you know, perform in, in that way, I, I'm not sure I'd be able to do it under that much, that much pressure. Well, and it strikes me too, like, I mean, with George Orwell, who, who was a really big deal to me also, like, homage to Catalonia, I was struck by, here's this Eton educated kid who's trying to hide his accent from working class people around him, but he's not just covering the war, as Hemingway did and, and some of these others, but he enlisted. And took a bullet to the throat. And took a bullet to yeah. the throat. And then was nearly arrested and would have been tortured and killed right. for, for certain. And yet writes about it in such, I, I find it to be a very similar way to the way you hold the hand of viewers you know, around the world, all these conflicts that you've covered, is I just, it feels very similar to me, your approach. I mean, he was so brave, but so humble when he writes that book. And people always say to me, oh, you write in the first person, that's so lazy, it's so egotistical. And I just say, read Homage to Catalonia. Because he's putting himself right in the middle of that story, and it's it's the least egotistical book about about war. I've, I mean, I've read dozens of books by people who barely dipped their toes into war compared to what Orwell did, yeah. and yet it's all you know, me, 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 and look at how amazing I am that I went here and stayed here for three weeks and witnessed this. Um, so yeah, I, I love Homer to Catalonia for, for for exactly that reason. Hmm. One of the things that Jim Jim Lampley said to me, I think I asked him why boxing was his favorite sport, and he said because. No matter who you are, like in America, you can be from any background, and there's somebody in the sport who's from that background, who's your size, who has a style that somehow is the way you identify your style, struggling in your, in your own life. And there's no other sport that allows that, that level, that breadth uh, spectrum of characters with which to identify with. Was there one starting out, or is there one now that, that you just really saw yourself in some way, just a strong identification with? No, and I think that's why I love boxing so much, is because when I see a great, or not even a great boxer, when I see a good boxer who's had a semi-successful career, I, I, they're doing things I don't think I'd, I'd be able to do. On some days I think, yeah, like my granddad boxed, my dad boxed, I think, yeah, if I started boxing at 13, 14, maybe I could have been a semi-decent boxer, maybe. But, but in terms of like right now, you know, when, when I see, on, on any, any, any fight card at 
Barclay Centre or Madison Square Garden, even someone relatively unknown on the undercard, even sometimes a journeyman who's there to lose, um, I still think, man, I, I, could, I couldn't do that for six rounds. I couldn't take the beating he just took for six rounds and still just get up and go, OK, here we go for another round. Um, I think that's why I love it, because it's, sometimes it's, it's, it's not even a, it's not a pleasure to watch boxing, it's just I admire boxers. And it's slightly different, you know? Um, you know, I can watch a, a stupid, fun movie and it's just pleasurable and I switch off for an hour and a half. Boxing is slightly different. Like, I've got so much respect for, for, for boxers that it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like watching tennis or, 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 or you know, soccer. Right. Um, there's something more going on there. And I think it's because they do things that I find extraordinary that, that I keep on going back time and time again. Well, I'm struck, I'm struck also by... <laughs> quote of yours which is what you said was your strength in, a, in another interview I think it was with Joe Rogan is to be in the right place for long enough to record what actually happens but I'm also just struck by your observations about other journalists covering conflict are so incisive uh, about people who claim to be there covering something when they're really not in the kind of danger that they could be or you know, presenting the image of war in a way that's self-serving versus really putting yourself at risk and I wonder if you see something similar with how fighters negotiate or compartmentalize going away from their families to step in there. Well, that could be another reason why I love boxing is because there aren't really fakes in boxing. You can't. No. I mean, around boxing, sure. But in terms of actual boxers, I mean, even just if, if you train at a local gym, there aren't really any fakes even just training at a local gym, you know, because you get found out pretty quickly. So maybe that's another one of the reasons why I love boxing so much is because A, not only are there almost no fakes actually directly involved in boxing, but B, the guys that are in it are like the nicest guys in the world. Yeah. Perfect gentlemen. So humble, you know? Just just exactly that. I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because I'm, you know, I'm a journalist um, from, from a small town in England that had no, no boxing club whatsoever, but half my friends are boxers. Cause, and I think it's just because it's men who really have nothing to prove because they've just proved it again and again and again. So, you know, I've been out with boxer friends where someone's tried to start a fight, and with a real smile on their face, they said, trust me, like, don't, don't you don't want to do this. Like, let's just try and enjoy ourselves. Let's have a drink, calm down. And the guy's, like, pushed and pushed and pushed. And occasionally, they like, just give them, like, a little left hook under the ribs, and the guy's, like, you know, in a pile on the floor. But they really had to be persuaded to, to have a fight, you know? And there's not many men... Are strong enough in themselves to be to be able to do that to be able to like happily diffuse a situation and walk away and not think oh no I was a pussy what was wrong with me you right. know um, so again I think that's another reason why I love I love I love boxing and, and like boxing so much well and I wonder I mean you're a lot of what you cover also I mean with especially in this country most of the people who are going to war are from extreme poverty the most vulnerable people in the country boxing has always walked in lockstep with poverty the most vulnerable groups, and the moment those groups elevate, they generally stop participating. There's not a lot of Jewish boxers anymore, a lot less Irish boxers. Um, but you you don't come from extreme poverty. You come from middle class, or you went to a private school? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, school in England, I've got a very weird background. Very working class family, but then when I was 10, 11 years old, my dad started to make a little bit of money and sent me to the local private school, which it was kind of a private school because there was a fee involved. Like there was no, it wasn't like yeah. shorts and choirs and church and you know. Um, and then half my friends are boxers and half my friends are journalists. So half my friends are, you know, largely tough working class kids. You know, and then half my friends are, 
you know, university educated, very well spoken, upper middle class uh, kids. Um, and I've always been actually, so, some days I love the fact that I'm kind of part of both worlds. Um, but sometimes it, it makes me kind of feel like a bit of a fraud in both worlds. Right. You know, like often as a journalist, I'll think when I'm sitting down to interview someone very, you know, senior and smart, I'll, I'll always think this guy's going to take, I'm not smart enough to do this interview. I'm going to make myself look stupid at some point in this interview. Yeah. At the same time, when I'm hanging out with boxers, sometimes I think, oh, they'll think, yeah, he's brave and he's tough because he's a war reporter, but he's not really brave and tough like we are. Right. You know, so... Sometimes I feel so lucky that I kind of feel like AJ Liebling or something, you know, where I'm so lucky that I'm able to be in both worlds at the same time. But that can also give you a slight imposter syndrome in both worlds well, as I wondered, well. I wondered about that because I, I, one of the things I was considering, like coming here, is do you feel at home here in Brooklyn? I mean, you're from England, like we're both from other countries, but is this, do you have a sense of home or is home conflict? at this point after 18 years? Is your mind already over there? Yeah, I mean, I feel as at home here as I did in London, weirdly. Um, I mean, especially now with all the Brexit mad madness going on, I just kind of think this isn't me, this isn't my people. Um, and, and one of the things that came out through the, the, the therapy I'm having to do as a result of the PTSD is I absolutely felt at home in conflict more than I did here and was fitting in less and less here and, and, and you know, normal was, was more and more out of reach here. Whereas in conflict zones, I was, I was able to function really well, yeah. um, you know, and feel really confident all the time. Um, so I don't know. I mean, part of me just thinks, no, you're never going to feel really at home anywhere because you have had such a weird Have you always had that feeling? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I love the book so much because I think for the first time in my life, I thought, these guys understand how I'm thinking. These guys have the answers to the questions I've only just begun asking. Um, and most of them were dead. So they weren't people I could become friends with or reach out to, but they felt more like friends than any friend I ever had as a kid. You know. Interesting. Um, well, I was thinking, I've heard all of your reasons in, in a positive way of like what you've been chasing in terms of informing the public with what you're covering, and, and you do it with film, and you do it with books. Um, but I'm also just interested in, I guess, reverse engineering from the passions, the wounds that inspired it, because in my experience with most creative types, it, it, it generally is uh, an easier dance with your demons than it is with your virtue. Yeah. I wondered if in your therapy, and, and with a number of boxers I've interviewed, it's always some wound that has driven them to this extreme yeah, yeah. of you know, Tyson being bullied, Andre Ward being mixed race and being racially attacked by both sides, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. both his parents being fierce drug addicts. Um, Roy Jones Jr. saying he was suicidal and murderous towards his father since childhood. I mean, these are not well-balanced people yeah, electing yeah. to choose a yeah, path. Yeah. And yet, my entire sense of view is that you did. But is that true? No. I mean, you know, a lot of the reasons for getting into this in the first place was uh, fighting injustice. You know, I, I want to be useful and I can, I can fight injustice by exposing these things. But having done it, I, mean, I, I don't know how many trips I've been on, but 60, 70, I don't know, to, to you know, war zones. Um, I did realise through the therapy that, that, that part of me was just pushing and pushing and pushing. And I was never brave enough or tough enough and never worked hard enough. 
and I was I was always trying to measure up to something and, and there was no way I was ever gonna actually measure up um, and that could be like I said my you know my, my dad grew up he was a he was a policeman back when you know, they'd fight with their fists on a regular basis when he was 19 years old he was out on the streets getting in fights with fully grown men my grandparents were all in you know public housing got bombed out of London during World War two um, you know conscripted fought for two years straight in World War two so and because, like I said, when I was, I don't know, 10, 11 years old, my dad got a job as, as basically a state agent um, and started to make a little bit of money, um, there's maybe a guilt that I have it easy in comparison to, to you know, all of my family. Right. Um, and that was compounded by the fact that I set out to do this by thinking I could help in some way. You know, if I show people what's going on, these wars will somehow stop or we will stop arming the wrong side in these wars. And there's very little evidence to suggest that's that's true. Like there's very little ev evidence to suggest that that even we collectively, as war correspondents, have done much to actually stop any war, anywhere. So you're going out there, you're filming people in their worst moment. You know, people wailing when their kid has just been killed. Um, you're seeing. I mean, in in in, in most on the last trip, but we we sat, sat in a room with three guys crying and kissing their dead. Comrade, colleague, right on the ground, right next to us for hours. Um, and if I'm coming back with this dramatic, in incredible footage, and it's not actually changing anything in that country in that conflict at all, then why am I doing it? I'm getting fairly well paid for what I do. I get a certain amount of respect for what I do, and people occasionally come up and say, "Oh, I love your stuff. You're really brave, and you know, really that documentary really affected me." So, so there, there's a you can very easily feel guilty. And you're thinking, I'm just doing this, you know, whether I set out to do it for these re reasons or not, I'm just, I'm just doing this for selfish reasons. All of the gains that come as a result of these films are, 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 are gains that I make. I'm not helping the people I cover at all. Um, and I, I said this on the Joe Rogan interview recently, and I got hundreds of messages from people saying, oh, you shouldn't think that, keep on going, what you do is really important, and you've educated me about Yemen and Afghanistan, and, and it was lovely to hear that, but I kind of think... Yeah, but so what? What? what how, how have I helped the people in Yemen or Iraq or Palestine or Congo or wherever? And honestly, I'm not sure I've helped them at all. You know, and, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much value awareness has these days, because um, there's so much other stuff out there. And then you know, so many conspiracy theories as well. I mean, more conspiracy theories now than than I think there have ever been. You know, the internet has made us dumber, not not smarter. More people believe in angels than climate change. Right, right. In America. In America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure America's the only country where that's true. But it's it's troubling, isn't it? I mean, and I was just thinking with you in relation to, to fighters. I mean, when I mentioned seeing you across the ring and having that fear of, oh, he's when this guy walks out the door, he disappears, and I, I hope he comes back. It's a similar feeling I've had with some fighters when you're in the dressing room with them and they go out there and you stay behind with their family and you just think... This guy also happens to be a world-class athlete, a world champion or whatever, but I've been driving around with him for five or six yes. hours. And, and for some, it's clear that there's no choice either. Yes. Either they have to do it for financial reasons or because otherwise their career is over, or for other reasons, they just don't give themselves the choice. And, and I'm definitely in that boat as well, where I don't give myself the choice to say, no, I'm not going to go on this, on this trip, or I'm not going to walk down the alleyway, or I'm not going to go on this patrol because it just this might just be a bit too much. You don't allow yourself to say no to anything. 
Well, and so you brought up, and I didn't know this about you, um, you brought up a, an interest of gambling in, in fights, and, and, and a lot of people do. But I've been struck with a lot of the fighters that I've met that almost to a man, um, they're all gamblers. None of them are dealers in the casino right, or right. boxing. And Andre Ward is the only one where he looked at boxing really as a, I'm the house. Right. They come into my Lennox casino. Lewis? No, 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 Andre Ward. No, no, but oh, Lennox Lewis could be, could be the same. Yeah, I think that's, that's He always true. seemed like he was like, you know, I, I, the goal is to win. Yeah. And I don't need to like take a beating to win if I don't have to. That's a fair uh, I retire undefeated, or not, I'm sorry, I retire with my faculties intact and, and yeah. you know, a big pile of money in the bank. And I avenged all my losses. Yeah, and, yeah. And no, Thomas Don't really care about pleasing the crowd every single time, you know. He, he actually, when he, just before he retired, he asked Thomas Hauser to ghostwrite his retirement speech. And he, before he announced it, he asked Tom, have I done enough with my resume in your eyes to, to justify <laughs> yeah. walking? And you think, like, talk about imposter syndrome because you think, Jesus, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know any heavyweight who goes 12 rounds with Lennox Lewis yeah. in yeah. his prime. In my opinion, I yeah. think he's probably the most dangerous heavyweight who ever lived. But still in his head, it's a, cal- yeah. it's a calculation. It's the chess player yeah. of where do I stand. But I, I was also, I think the MO that boxers would like to have is that they're sadists rather than masochists that they, they do love the violence but most of the time like gamblers it's about masochism yeah they stay in there till they lose now. have you ever read Jeffrey Bernard no he's a Soho Soho London drunk who had a weekly column and, and he, he failed to file this column so often because he was drunk that the column was called Jeffrey Bernard is unwell Wow. Because half the time it would just say that and there would be no column. <laughs> but he was a degenerate gambler and lost everything. And, and he said, gambling is for men who like to collect injustice. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, do you think boxing, like, is it, does it still have the power to reveal a culture the way it has historically? I mean, the 20th century, it's fascinating how illuminating it's been. If you look at... What said of Joe Lewis, he was the first African American that white America ever rooted for, and against the Nazis. And uh, but then white America still made him broke because he yeah. took two purses that he donated directly to charity, and they said that's income you owe us right. tax on that. While he's in the military. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Ali versus Vietnam left the sport broke. Um, I mean Tyson earning and losing four hundred million during Reagan's reign, I mean, the rise of it and stuff. And I mean, you grew up in Thatcher's England also. Um, do you think that that's still happening with boxing? Does boxing still have that power? I mean, if you look at the, the um, former Soviet state fighters, I think you could argue it does with them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Cuban amateurs, still, I think it still does. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I went to the Cronk Gym a few times before it before it closed down, and 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 that really felt like you'd come out of there a Cronk fighter. Um, I'm not sure that exists as much today. Um, but even where you're from now, I mean, New York, all these gym, all these famous New York fighters. I mean, Brownsville producing Riddick Bowe, Mike Tyson, Floyd Patterson, and now the only gyms that can survive cater to white collar extraordinarily wealthy people. Or, or, or Danny Jacobs, one of the only, you know, world champions in New York at the minute, he trains underneath a Yemeni bodega in Bed-Stuy, you know, Saddam Ali's gym. I've heard of this, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a lot bigger than, than my living room and kitchen that we're sitting in now. Yeah. Um, and it's an amazing place to be. I've been in there when like, there are like three or four world champions training in there. 
Um, but but you'd hope that somewhere that you know provided or, you know came up with that many world champions would be better supported than than that. You know, a small basement underneath the Yemeni bodega. I mean, and you could stand on the street there and say to people, "Did you know there's a gym round here that trains world champions?" And literally, the door could be within touching distance, mm-hmm. and people would say, oh, "I have no idea where is it." Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I remember interviewing Andre Ward where he was talking for the first time about his parents' struggles with addiction. His mom was on the street. His dad was a heroin addict, um, and they're all totally out of control with with the assistance of the drug. Is this your drug? Is this the thing that's allowed you to stay focused and disciplined and wake up every day and do all you know, live, live a life of indentured yeah, yeah. servitude, of yeah. extreme duress? His body's breaking down and everything. Um, do you? I mean, it's a weird thing to say, but like we're in a very wealthy enclave of of New York. Um, could you cope with not like with just this being your life? Um, I mean, I'm under doctor's orders since January not to go to a war zone so I haven't been to a war zone so far this year which is the longest I've been in 18 years how does that feel I'm I'm feeling kind of useless um you know I'm feeling like I'm not really doing much that's important I'm trying to do things that's supposed to be good for me I've tried to do yoga and swimming and running and um try to read normal books you know I read a few novels (laughs) but but yeah there's just there's just there's just an edge which is which is gone and, and you know as soon as you told me that Andre Ward story I remember saying I had a screening of an Afghanistan film in London um, and it was pretty rough there'd been some I'd, 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 I'd basically got stuck in between seven IEDs and we didn't realise it at the time but a guy was watching us with a wire from those IEDs to a battery and as soon as he connected the two all seven IEDs were going to go up and luckily for me I'd broken a promise to my mother where I'd said Mum, I'm not going to be like right at the front anymore. I'm going to hang back a bit and take it a bit more carefully. I was right at the front of these guys pushing through, through, pushing through a village. And luckily for me, the guy with the power to set off the seven IEDs saw that there were a few of us at the front and there was a bigger group in the middle. So he waited for the bigger group to come up and we moved ahead. And then he set it off. But it was 30 feet behind me. Seven giant IEDs went off. And I've had friends who've lost legs, arms. One friend lost two legs and one arm to an IED. Um, and I said after that trip, and we had a screening of this film, and it's it's harrowing footage. I said, yeah, I think I might be uh, I might be done. Like that was a real close shave, and I think maybe I've like rolled the dice a few too many times, and and that that may, maybe that's it for me doing this kind of stuff. And that was 2010, I think. <laughs> um, so you've been back several times since then. Dozens of times since then. Yeah, literally dozens of times. Does that? Uh, do you see that in a lot of these fighters that just can't let go? I mean, you have this poster of Ali. He did become emblematic of all these wonderful things with boxing. But I always found it was interesting, When We Were Kings, a film that got wide acceptance and love, it also omits the result. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm 44 now, and it's hard to accept that, that maybe you're, you're over the hill, you know? And certainly, you know, maybe you're not in, in, in peak condition enough to be doing what what Ali did but you can I, I, I can see how they think yeah I'm not you know you can I mean Ed Robinson the guy that I always say the guy that tried to teach me how to box because you know he didn't have much to work with but but he always says you know boxers as, 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 in amongst everything else they're also very good liars because they've got to tell themselves so many lies just to get them through it and then get them into that ring it's all lying I mean it, they're like, and you're lying to your opponent as well it's the only sport where you hide the fact you're hurt <laughs> 
I think they're the biggest liars I've ever met because because you're right. I and mean, what is it? If you think about that, I mean, there's an interesting example to illustrate your point, which is all casinos like to to prevent cheating at casinos. It's all ex cheats who are spotting. It. Right, right. Because honest people can't spot dishonesty as effectively as a dishonest right. person. All banks right, right. get bank robbers. Uh, Catch Me If You Can, Frank Abagnale has now worked with the FBI for 30 years as one of their experts yeah, yeah, yeah. for security. Um, currency forgery is all done by great forgers. Yeah, so yeah. Why is it dishonest people that are so... Yeah. And also, like, you know, if Andre Ward were here, I would say like, you had such a great career and you're a brilliant commentator. Like I love watching you on TV and I love hearing you break down fights. But I can see him thinking what I said earlier, yeah, but it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same as being the guy, you know? But it's also, it's, you know, it's, I mean, there, there are different ways you can lie to yourself, but it's lying to yourself about how you're okay yeah. when you're not. You know, I mean, most people, you know, you talk to a lot of boxers who say, oh, yeah, my dad beat me up, I, I had a horrible child, but I'm okay. You think you're not. Most people who say they're okay, you know, and when, when you know they've been through something like that, you know they're not. Do you, do you find that not going back to, to something that you recognize could be an addiction, um, are you going to are you going to be okay when you have a normal life away from this identity? I mean, like what I'm learning is if you do any kind of therapy, like it's, it's there's no silver bullet. You know, it takes a very long time. Um, so right now, the idea of you know, I, I tried MDMA therapy. I did I did three sessions where you, it's basically a seven hour therapy session on MDMA. So you're so open to things you would not normally be open to at all. And the first session, I remember thinking. You could have like a little house in the country and a wife and a dog and grow vegetables. You, you really could have that and you could enjoy it and be happy. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, that, that was a feeling I had for a few minutes to under the influence of MDMA in that therapy. That, that feeling went away again pretty soon afterwards. And at the end of that same MDMA session, I also started planning future projects. You know, other ways to make documentaries about, about war and planning series and things I hadn't done yet. Um, so, so it's you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, it, it'd be interesting for us to try and think of an example of a boxer who doesn't have what Andre Ward is talking about. I mean, what more could Andre Ward have achieved? But that's that's itself a big struggle. I mean, Andre Ward, there's there's divine purpose in God, and and same with Roy Jones Jr. He made the point that until an X-ray shows that I'm brain damaged enough that I can't fight, it's a clear signal from God to point where I'm going. And I said, has God ever told you to do something you didn't yourself want to do? And he thought about it for about two seconds and went, no. And we just moved on. I said, doesn't that make you question right, right. that it's not God? It's just you co-signing on some, right. you know. Right. I'm just like, no. Wow. That's the end of it. So I thought, boy, like the Kool-Aid is there. Tyson seems like he might be in a good place now. Like I've listened to his podcast a few times yeah. and he seems like a guy who genuinely seems to have, have mellowed and seems to, I mean, he says, like, I've just learned to love myself a bit and, you know, um, who knows? Who knows what he's like, you know, behind closed doors. Very complex. But, but, yeah, yeah. But I agree. I mean, I think he's doing enough marijuana to... <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the answer, yeah. Maybe it's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tyson, Tyson was a combination, in, in my view interviewing him like for a few hours of the most sensitive person I've ever met in my life and probably the most egotistical. He surrounds himself with like statues of great conquerors, like Alexander the Great. And to this Genghis day, he's like that as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he, he's very complex and can compartmentalize whatever's necessary to find relevance. And I don't, I'm not saying it's all fake, but it's just, it's fascinating yeah, how yeah. I asked him about being sexually abused and, and he talked about it, acknowledged it. And the Bye. next... Uh, he, he said a stranger, a stranger right. when he moved to Brownsville. But the interesting thing that I noted was the next day, he volunteered it on a radio show because it's pretty clear he like metabolized it intellectually that, oh, here's a narrative that's going to go global. And this will repurpose who I am right. to the public and they'll, they'll view me in a different way and it'll get people talking. And, you know, it's been 30 years if he was a PR agent of just packaging himself to continually make, make people talk about him. And uh, there's just a... Wow. I'd always, and I've never met him or spent time with him, I'd always thought it was just a little kid who was horribly bullied, didn't want to be that bullied little kid anymore, and it was lashing out in various different ways. But that's, that's fascinating. Well, you think it could be a lot more than that? A lot of his most famous quotes of aggression, he has said, I'm always quoting somebody, it's never me. And so when I hear... You can't last two minutes in my world, bitch. Look at you scared now, you hoe. Scared like a little white pussy. Scared of the real man. I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot. I don't believe that came from Tyson. Right. I think that's probably... Somebody who spent as much time in institutions as he did as a kid. Right. Um, it... Suddenly, it, a lot of things seem clear. Right. About him, if you look at him that way. I mean... He, and the idea of creating a construct as a world-class victimizer like he enjoyed uh, seems like he was a world-class victim long before and, and that is, is a kind of genesis for that. I mean, I always think with like a lot of boxers or any, any sort of great people that they, th these are the dreams of a little kid to become world champion, right? Like by the time you're 10 or 12, your parents say, you need to think more realistically and, and, and be more grown up and pragmatic. But these guys essentially never have to abandon the dream. Right. Everybody around them has to attend to them. Yeah, and he's also an exceptional case. And at 13, he was, what, 200 pounds? Yeah. And, you know, um, and I, I hadn't you know, met Teddy Atlas recently and, and we, we talked a lot about Tyson and Carson. I hadn't realized that when Teddy famously put a gun to Tyson's head. Um, that's what, like, immediately, that's what led to him being fired. Yes. So it wasn't Tyson did something wrong. We need to sort this out. It was Teddy. Teddy um, castigated the star. Yeah. You know, the next superstar. So Teddy's the one that goes. Um, I hadn't realized that it was. It was. The, I, th I thought it was a series of events led to Teddy getting kicked out and fired. No, I mean, I, I think the thing with Teddy is really interesting because Teddy had a real chip on his shoulder that everybody wanted to talk to him about Tyson. Until there was another world champion, it was sort of like, let's talk about what right, could have right. been with Tyson. He hated that. Right, right. You know? Oh, I blew it then because the first thing I started talking about when I met him was, was Tyson. And how, you know, that, that, that story of, of Tyson as a kid was like an inspiration to me as a kid. Yeah, and I, I really liked Teddy Atlas, but I mean, at the same time, I noticed watching one of his early fights where he was a trainer was with... Tyson's trainer that replaced him, Kevin Rooney. And when he was Rooney's trainer, it's the first time I've ever seen a trainer enter the ring wearing his robe, and it wasn't the fighter's name on the back of his robe, it was his own. And I thought, I'm not surprised you're as successful as you are because you're really thinking ahead, right? right? It's right. Back then, yeah, Kevin back. Rooney was, yeah, yeah. Was not a Nothing. big name. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me just go, I wanted to, in your story for the New York Times that you co-wrote with Marine Corps Corporal Thomas Gibbon Neff, you wrote that the battle felt considered and cerebral. 
that it was like there was a set of rules they were working with, and within those rules, they try to get in the other guy's head. It seems a lot like boxing, the way you're talking about war. I mean, that, that was snipers. Yeah. So that was a Taliban sniper and a Marine sniper unit trying to find out where each other's hiding places were and, and you know, and that, I, I've never seen snipers coming up against snipers that up close before. That was, that was fascinating. And, and, and like boxing, I mean, I remember, was it Spinks always used to walk into the ring saying, it's just another sparring session. Right. You know, that's all it is. And it, it was amazing how calm everything was. And, and the Taliban sniper in that story would fire one bullet a day. So he'd get himself into a good, good position of, you know, where he was concealed and he'd wait for the perfect shot, he'd take that shot. A couple of other Taliban guys far away would fire straight after him to confuse people with the sounds. Then he would pack up, move away, find another spot and just wait for the perfect shot. And he fired four bullets over the first few days of, of that operation while I was with the Marines and hit three Marines. And one, one of them he hit right between the eyes. Jesus. caught the helmet and luckily the guy had a, a metal bracket on there to hold his night vision goggles and that's what saved him because a high velocity bullet from a sniper's rifle will go through those Kevlar helmets. I've seen one go through a helmet, someone's head and through the other side. So those are not bulletproof helmets if a, if a sniper hits you with a, with a good shot at reasonably close range. Well, kind of the irony of the conclusion of this story was that they issued a drone strike to take out one of the snipers. It wasn't the Americans had a better sniper, a better strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the, the I, I immediately thought it was like the equivalent of performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. Although it, yeah, with, with with Afghanistan and the Taliban, it goes on further. I mean, the, the famous old old you know somewhat cliched saying now is the the, the Taliban or the Mujahideen say, um, uh, "You have the weapons, but we have the time." Huh. Um, so yeah, you might have the performance enhancing drugs, but, but so what, we can do this for decades, you can't. Interesting. In your, first series, uh, in your first series with widespread critical acclaim, you traveled on a tourist visa to the countries on George Bush's axis of evil, which were Iran, Syria, Libya, Cuba, Iraq, and North Korea. What's it like to go as a tourist to a country because it's labeled evil? Um, I mean, that kind of spoke to me completely about why you should be a journalist in the first place. You talk about Martha Gellhorn, Richard Kapuczynski. I mean, Shane, one of the, found, you know, the founder, one of the founders of Vice, um, used to say, listen, the American media is like um, six-year-olds playing soccer. Like it's 20 kids just chasing a ball around the pitch. So that leaves the rest of the pitch empty for us. You know, so, so going where I'm not supposed to go, talking to people who are feared and the enemy and radical and crazy and you know um that that to me seemed like the essence of the kind of journalism i should be doing and also just by showing up and saying oh you know i just wanted to hear it from your point of view yeah they're 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 so impressed and so grateful for that 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 you know you you we really got to see a, a hell of a lot um and it was amazing how easy it was to say i mean i remember in north korea we went the u.s marines gave us a tour of the demilitarized zone from the south and they said, you want to see how crazy these North Koreans are? Look, they put these giant speakers up along the border and they blast propaganda at us all day long and all night as well. And we were like, oh, wow, yeah, he's crazy. Then we went to China and flew from China to North Korea and gave, did the tour of the demilitarized zone with the North Korean soldiers. And they said, do you want to know how crazy the Americans are? They put all these speakers up and they blast heavy metal at us all day long. And, all, and it, you know, it was true. They were doing exactly the same thing. So, so you know... 
Um, Iran is nowhere near as evil as we're told. Iranians are some of the loveliest, most hospitable, generous people in the world. Um, you know, and, and normally when one side's accusing the other of something, they're doing something very similar themselves. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly my sense with Cuba as well. I, was, I mean, how did, I mean, there was an A-list of evil countries, which was Iraq, Iran, North Korea, and then John Bolton, who was working for Bush at the time, added Syria, Cuba, Libya. Yeah. Um, how does Cuba get into any six, top, top, top six of evil countries in the world? You know, it's insane. Well, I mean, I, I remember with Cuba, it was funny that, Che Guevara was the FBI's most dangerous man in the world. Uh, and then Osama bin Laden occupied the same role. And it's like, boy, could you imagine Osama bin Laden being the most ubiquitous t-shirt in the world where nobody has any clue what he stood for or what he talked about yeah, or anything yeah, yeah. like that? Like, but it's also, it's not just, um, you know, what I discovered by reporting is the opposite of what my government is telling me. It's, it's like a set of Chinese boxes. So Cuba's a good example because... You might turn up in Cuba and think, oh, it's all bullshit, you know, Cuba's great. But then you realize that students who are critical of the government are getting locked up and tortured. Sure. Um, but you can't say that to some people in this country. Um, you know, uh, same thing with Maduro or Chavez in, in Venezuela. You know, you, and, and, and that's why I love Orwell so much, because he said, you know, the, the hardest daily struggle is to see what's right in front of your nose. Um, and you know, just keep on that relentless questioning and, and, and just seeing with your eyes completely wide open, um, because it's so easy to get to get lazy when you when you when you're doing this. Well, I was wondering too when you when you talked about your parent. This is something I was thinking about as I was listening to your interviews. Like, my mother left Budapest in 1956 during during the Hungarian Revolution, but she was five. I mean, that's only I think that was like a month that that was going on with the Russians coming in with tanks and stuff, but. She was five and she remembers seeing people hung, executed, and, and gunshots, and her dad putting on her on her shoulders and just everywhere shooting. And I was like, how did that impact you? And she's like, I don't really know. Yeah, because yeah. like a month later, my dad left. He just like, my mom gave him a backpack, he put it on and, and he just left. And then 10 years later, there was a phone call like, I finally got enough money that I can bring you right, all. Right. And the rest of the family's like, we're not going. Right. So she went on her own. And I was like, I don't know if she would identify with PTSD from that experience, but I know it like she had no childhood. Oh, I think, I think my, my dad certainly has it. I think my grandparents all had it for sure. And also being English is a big problem as well because everything is just like, <laughs> don't talk about it, don't address it, it's just fucking tough and, you know. Right, stiff upper lip. And then they were, I mean, like major alcohol problems in the family as well, you know. Um, and that, I mean, that's a, such an English thing as well, of just fucking drink and drink and drink. Self-medicate. And then all the, all the real darkness comes out when you're plastered, but you just blame it on the alcohol. Right. That's not trauma coming out, so you'd, you'd behave in the worst way possible, but that was just because you were drunk, it wasn't because you were fucked up. Well, so I have a lot of alcoholism in my family too, but I don't drink. And I've noticed that a lot of kids of alcoholics or from alcoholic households, like they go to one extreme or the other. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you, you were similar in that. I didn't drink from the age of 17 to 21 or something and then thought that was kind of a, a middle ground I could, I could reach. But then when university, I quit university after a year um, and just really went off the rails, you know, getting smashed every weekend. Hmm. Just because the one thing that gave me hope, you know, studying and books and reading, had, had turned out to be nothing for a little while after because university was such a disappointment and then luckily a few years later like got into it all over again and got a job fairly quickly undercover so before I did the conflict stuff I spent four years undercover 
Well, again, we're talking about identity, like you crafting identity. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I probably should have raised that, but that is fascinating that you you spent four years, I mean, creating identities. Yeah. For consumption. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it kind of was identities, but you just you had a light, slight backstory, and when you're undercover, you stuck to that backstory with the people you're undercover with. You know, the identity actually was was the guy that can just disappear into hard places for months on end and you know, immerse himself completely. That that was the identity that I was kind of really creating and, and loving. The, the lying to be what you're undercover with was slightly easier and didn't need to be quite so complete. Right. How much of, how much of what your life has been professionally has been about, less about what you're going toward and more about what you're escaping from? Um, I think the whole thing has been escaping from. I'm escaping, my, my dad, when I was, when I was 15, well no, 16, 17 was reading Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And my dad would say, you just need to get a job that pays 30 or 40 grand a year. Nothing else matters. And I remember being like, fuck you, dad. <laughs> you know, like, um, that's going to be the opposite of how my life turns out. And I, I used to walk home. I got sent to this semi-private school in Bedford. And all the other kids lived outside of the town. So they would have buses or parents would pick them up and take them home to their nice houses outside of town. I was one of only about two or three kids that lived inside the town. And I'd have to walk a couple of miles home. I'd walk over this hill and you'd see the town in front of you. It was just these little boxes with these little lights. I was like, I'm supposed to work my whole life to get one of them. Like, mm. Fuck this, there's no fucking way this is my life, you know. Could you survive that kind of life? No, fuck no. I could have done it for a year. I could have done it for any amount of time. No, it would have been miserable. And I think now part of the, you know, in relationships and the idea of maybe having kids and part of it is a fear of, of being, even if it's, not a crappy little box in a crappy little town, even if it's nicer than that, there's still a fear of, of, you know, being stuck there. Do you think you can, I don't know, equalize from, like divers, if you go down far enough, there's a principle scienti scientifically that every, every 10 meters you go down, it's like the equivalent of a martini and a half. Oh. You're getting drunk and drunk and drunk and drunk until you get to a certain point it's known as the most serene experience that most of these people have ever felt in their entire lives. And if you've ever almost drowned, which I have a couple of times, as enough oxygen is not going to yeah, your yeah, brain, yeah, yeah. you reach a sense of tranquility that yeah, I've yeah. never experienced in my life. Yeah. Where you think, why would I want to go back up right, right, above right, right. when this has felt more peaceful than I've ever experienced? I actually have imagined either getting shot or blown up so many times. And part of me has always imagined thinking, fuck, it's finally happened. Like you haven't, you've got a leg missing now. Fuck. But part of me has also thought, you can rest now. You know, I've, I've imagined like being on a hospital bed and just thinking, okay, now you can, now you can rest. Now you're allowed to rest. Yeah, yeah. Now you can just like watch films, read nice books. You know. And part of me thought, yeah, that's what it'll take. Keep going till that happens. Hmm. Well, thanks so much for your time, man. This was, this was like pleasure. Tourist Information is presented by The Ring, is produced by Dolgen Digital Media, Jorge Alacon Suebi, and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler.